Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up, making things happen. I talk to different creative professionals every week, and this week I'm talking to Mark Christopher. He is the writer-director of the movie 54, which just came out in a brand new director's cut that Mark put together after being released in 1998, 99, I think 98. Um, Anyway, he got to do his director's cut, the one he always wanted, and uh, I just got to see it, I mentioned this last week in the podcast, at Outfest Under the Stars a few weeks ago, and I was so excited to talk to Mark about it. Okay, before we get into that, a little housekeeping. Um, I'd love it if you went to DennisAnyone.net. You can do fun things there, like see pictures that go with the different podcasts, You can also kick a little money into my virtual tip jar if you feel like it. It helps me keep the podcast free and uh, pay for things like web hosting, things like that. I really appreciate it. And you can also subscribe to my newsletter, things like that. Um, Also, I've started posting um, anecdotes about the interviews to Frontiers Media and on the... um, Dennis Anyone website under the the different podcasts, I have the links to those little articles. So if you miss those, you can find the links at DennisAnyone.net. Okay, enough of that stuff. Here's Mark Christopher uh, talking about the director's cut of 54. Enjoy. Hey there, I'm here in a very charming house in Silver Lake with Mark Christopher, the writer-director of the movie 54, and he's just come out with his official director's cut of 54. Um... It's so fun to have you on the podcast. We've been wanting to do this for a while. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, where are we? Uh, uh, right at this yes, moment. Yes, where we're at Casamagente. It's, it's the we're most at, wonderful little. I want to live in this house and uh, just this outdoor patio setting. It's great. Yeah, you and everybody who's ever walked in here. This yes. is the house of Maria Magente, my my uh, my sister, my soul sister. Um, and uh, I call it Casamagenti. Nice. And um, it's beautiful. That actually was Zach Kinto was up in that house up there before. Wow. Um, believe it or not. And um, yeah, this is um, a fun this is party central just place. Dripping in in talent. This yes, place. It is. Yes. Now, Maria, right where you're sitting you're... is where I met Chris Pine. Really? Chris Pine was here right where I was sitting? Yes. Oh my God! Telling dirty jokes. Really? Mm-hmm. What do you remember? Any of them? Um, I cannot repeat them. I think they were wow. Just naughty. Did they have to do with <laughs> semen? No. no. Anyway, um, now Maria is a filmmaker. Is well, you? You guys know each other We've for known a long each other time since the beginning of time. Um, she made the wonderful um, breakout movie, The Incredibly True Adventures of Two Girls in Love. Um, she had that out the year I had my first short, The Dead Boys Club, I believe. We were yeah. in, doing the festivals together back then, back in the new queer cinema days. And then you were involved in Act Up together, right? Correct, yeah. Um, Maria was really on the front lines. I was really in the back lines, but I was there. You were there? <laughs> I was there, yeah. What do you, there, what's your favorite, time. most vivid memory of being part of Act Up? Well, favorite is kind of a weird word, but, um, like, intense, um, uh, oh my gosh, well, Did you ever lay down in the street or anything like that? Um, sure, but you sure, know, I yeah, know, of course. But, but I was, you know, <laughs> I was always the good boy. So in at the Albany demo, I while everyone was getting arrested, I was charged with taking down names so that if the cops took you and you know killed you and yeah. burnt you, I would have your name written down. That so. would be me. I've yeah. got a pad. I've got a pen. <laughs> right. Right. All right. So I didn't want the record. So so. 54 came out originally in 1999, mm-hmm. and you got to do your director's cut 
16 years later. It came out in 1998. 1998. Exactly. How did you find out that this, there was a possibility of this happening? Was it something you were pushing for or did somebody call you and say, hey, do you want to do this? How did this happen? Um, No, actually I sort of, um, soon after the film was released, I made this bootleg cut, um, really just for me and the actors. And then that um, just sort of floated around and ended up getting in film festivals and it was out at Outfest in 2008, um, and it went over really, really well. And it was at that same time at the Turin Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, where they oversold the venue, and it created a riot because the good old uh, good old Italians, hot Italians yeah. riot. And yeah. I, you're there with a pen, yeah. taking notes on who gets arrested. <laughs> I think I, I think you know what I was around the corner at some yeah. place having coffee or something, and I of missed course. the entire riot. No, they had taken me downstairs into the screening room, and so I missed the whole riot. But they locked the doors, the cops came. Um, and of course, stories like this are really wonderful to tell a studio because they understand that maybe there's an audience out there for this. So Jonathan King, my wonderful, loyal producer, has been, um, you know, asking uh, Miramax, you know, pretty much every year. Was if, he there during the original? Was he, has he so, been there all along? Yeah. So um, as, as he likes to say, we went to movie kindergarten together. He okay. Was, uh, it was, uh, so it was my first feature. I was just making short films at the time. And he was an executive, a uh, junior executive at Miramax. So he found the script. We met at a party, he found the script. He took it to Miramax and got it um, going there. And then, um, uh, so, you know, cut to all these years later, he's just been supporting the film and trying to get Miramax to say yes. And finally, the Divines and Divine, um, last year, like almost exactly a year ago, said, yes, let's do it. It's the right thing to do. And um, we went, bam, right into... um, Real, really post-production because it's a restoration of a movie, and um, and it was ready sort of the minute before Berlin. Wow, mm-hmm. what was it like for you emotionally to start that process? I'm sure you were excited, but once you sat down to do it, how did it um, feel? Was it healing? Um, it was. There were moments of euphoria. And there were moments of gut-wrenching horror. (laughs) Did it feel like a million years ago, or did it feel like, oh my god, this feels like yesterday? Well, so, it, um, uh, both. Um, in certain ways, I suppose the movies never left me. I think any filmmaker, when you make a film, like, it never really leaves you. But, um, that one in particular, because it had so many fans that, you know, would never let it die, it was always sort of in my head you know, and in my brain. So, you know, then I would talk to John and John would talk to the studio. So it was always a little bit alive in my head. It's not that I really ever watched the cut from 1998. In fact, I don't think I saw it since we did the sound mix at Skywalker. (laughs) Um, So, um, but anyway, that, um, it was, uh, um, what did you, what was was it like emotionally to go back in? Um, it was, as you can tell, a bit of a roller coaster. And so it was, um, you know, as I said, those moments of euphoria when you just couldn't believe this was happening and you saw the scene working or a sequence working and then moments where you realize, oh, the negative doesn't exist. What are we going to do? So when you talk about the moments of horror, it was that you had a problem that you couldn't seem to solve because the materials are missing or something like that. 
Yeah, but we saw the, the the moment of horror always leads to a solution. You know right. what I'm saying? So, but you have to go through the horror to get to the solution. Somebody and, said that there was footage under our friend Jim Fall's house. Is yes. that true? Uh, yes. So um, the story there is that it has. A, there are certain shots that look very underground, and that is because they are truly underground. Um, so let's say there were, were just pieces of negative or, or, or certain scenes that were missing. Because um, this is a 17-year-old movie, and you know, hunting all that down was very difficult. Nancy Valley did an amazing job with that. But for the things that we couldn't find, we I had kept all of the cuts of the movie, so we had this. Um, we had pretty much every scene on on any kind of video format, and we decided to up-res certain scenes into negative, um, so that we could. Um, uh, use those in the film, but it had to be. They're usually the dark, seedy things, so that they looked very. Uh, they looked a little cruising. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it was sort of. I felt two ways about it. One was it was like, okay, this is you know these will be used for the cruising esque aspect of it, but also I, I you know I love the battle scars. Um, yes. You know, it shows it's that it's part it of the. It's part of the mythology of the movie yeah exactly yeah. um how did they end up at jim fall's house um because i moved um when i moved back east i thought if i'm if we get a green light so this shows you how many years i was hoping this could happen um i, I thought he might whoever needs this material might need it right away and rather than me shipping it back, it would be there waiting. Um, little did I know he'd put it under his house in the dirt. <laughs> oh, was it? A, was, had it degraded? It, it was okay? No, it was fantastic. Okay. No, L.A., you know, there's no humidity. So there you it's go. fabulous, yeah. Fantastic. In fact, even though we had D2s and Digibetas and all this stuff, we up from VHS because weirdly... Virgin VHS, VHS that's used once, at least in the case of this movie, aged better than anything else, believe it or not. I want to give a shout-out to VHS. Yeah. I like me some VHS. Yeah. What I loved about this cut, and I saw the original when it came out, and I saw parts of it before I was interviewing you, but I didn't sit there and watch the whole thing. Um, it, to me, it was about these young people, wide-eyed and innocent, big dreams, sucked into this crazy, exciting world... And these sort of jaded, middle-aged, awful vampires are, like, sucking the life out of them. And yet they sort of survive it and stick together. Mm. That's That was my takeaway. There was something poignant about young people surviving gross people or something like that. Well, I mean, no, they're all, they're all really flawed characters in the film, I think. You know, Anita's, the, the Salma Hayek character is really out for herself. And, um... Shane, you know, will fuck anybody that crosses his path. Um, he's sort of an opportunistic bisexual. Right. Nothing wrong with that at all. But so they're all, you know, they're all complicated characters. And um, what you would call the gross characters, I find delightful. You know, I was, I love Mike's performance of Steve Rebell. And even though he has his moments of grotesquerie, which, you know, are, are well in, are, you know, totally intentional. Um, you know, he's also a delight, I think. So. Oh, they're so fun to watch. Mm -hmm. Celia Ward, I forgot, was... Celia Ward mm -hmm. was a sexy little minx mm -hmm. and so much fun to watch. Mm -hmm. It was great restoring her, too. Now, did the, she the, have a lot more in this new cut than she did in the original, or...? Well, with most of them, it's not so much... Um, 
so Ryan's performance obviously is completely different. Brecken's performance is different. Salma's is to some degree. Um, uh, Mike's is the same. Most people think it's just a, a much better cut of Mike's performance. Mike's is almost exactly the same with one scene being taken out of the 98 cut and one scene being added back but we didn't change a frame of his performance so it's just that the movie around it has improved so you you feel like his performance has in terms of Sila it was bits and pieces so um uh you know it's i think she does a, a good job um i think her performance would probably cut pretty well in the 98 version but i got to fully re fully restore her in this version and the other thing is too for her character for all of them but really for her character and for mike's character it's really important is that i was able to retime the movie and color it in in the dark way that it was meant to be in other words we shot it so that it would be this very dark looking film that you experience in flashes of light so so um Sila and mike were really best served in this dark world as you brought them up you thought of them as vampires well just and jaded thinking, you know what i mean i like, like this vampire in contrast idea. <laughs> to the youthful idealism of yeah. oh my god this is so exciting well no and i like this idea it's like why does mike play even better in this version it's probably because he, the, the color timing is right that's and so that, interesting you know, he he and, and Sila is a bit of a vampire it's true yeah. um that they're that they they their their characters look better in the dark yeah i love yeah. that now when you speak about your actors you the affection comes through how did they feel about this this cut coming together they loved it They're, did you how yeah. did did you reach out to them and yeah. did you say hey this is happening yeah yeah um salma's first email back to me was like um mark i think you've lost your mind we made that movie 18 years ago or something. i can hear her accent ago, right? and she talks really fast yeah. i've interviewed her she talks incredibly fast yeah. and then and then when i explained it um she was she said oh my god this is amazing so yeah, so it's now, been is it, great. I'd heard, and I don't know if this is true, did Ryan do a voiceover for you as him, at his current age? Mm-hmm. How so, interesting. Yeah, so that's our little bit of um, our little bit of cinema history. Yeah. So we're, we're, we challenge the cinephiles out there if this has been done before. But So this is an actor who's 40 years old looking back at what it was like to be, you know, a, a, a very, very young man. So um, it's uh, it's 18 years later to look, back and to voice that so you can hear in his voice uh, this sort of this this depth in the voice of a man that you cannot imitate and i just even though that it's really subtle i, I love that well, little bit of first of all his voice is so unique mm -hmm. he's i don't know if it's a regional accent or what it is it's delaware yeah it's so specific mm -hmm. um what do you remember about casting because they're so those three especially are so young and beautiful mm -hmm. and fresh mm -hmm. I remember casting very well because it took about a year. It was really, you know, I really dug my heels in as a first-time director. Um, don't know where I got the hooks, but I did. And, um, you know, it was really important for me to have a Latina in the Latina role. And um, it was very important for the studio to have a name in that role. And so getting Salma was a, a real coup for, for And she was sides. a name at the time. She had, she had sort of been in... Yeah, she was, held on and, yeah. she was upcoming, so she, yeah. I, she, I don't know that she'd played such a large role in a, yeah. in a movie like that, but yeah, so um, uh, that was Salma. Brecken was actually the first person I cast, believe it or not, because he's sort of the, um, sort of the, the um, 
sensible heart of the movie in a way. Yeah. And he just, you know, came in and uh, blew us all away. And so he, he I, um, I cast right away. And then Ryan took about a year to cast because when I first saw him, he was um, fresh off the boat of, um, of uh, what's the a Ridley Scott movie where it's on a white squall? White squall. White squall. And so he was, he was very much like a 16-year-old boy. Then he went away and he did I Know What You Did Last Summer and he walked back in the room a year later. And you know what my friend man. calls that movie, by the way? What? I still have that script from last summer. <laughs> anyway, I always thought that was funny. So he came back to you. So he came back and he walked in the room, a young man, and it was like, oh yeah, this is done. We're done. And the cool thing is that he and Brecken um, are best friends in real life. And so it was wonderful to have that experience in shooting and also wonderful when they came to the U.S. premiere in San Francisco at the Castro and to have those two on stage uh, was for the Q&A. Was they came, oh amazing. my God, oh, the place amazing. must have gone crazy. I was afraid they were going to rip Ryan's clothes off. It was the just a banana screening. It was wonderful. And then we played it again at Frameline there and it was also just wonderful. So it's all the screenings have been really, really terrific. So. Now... Ryan Felipe in that disco shirt. First of all, I'm a huge 70s fan, and I love disco shirts. I would have spent three weeks picking out the shirt and asking him to try on outfits. Oh, uh, that shirt. Believe that me. That shirt was that amazing. Sh- that should be in a museum or something. It was I, the perfect disco shirt. I have, because you needed doubles. <gasps> there are probably triples. I have two. I have that shirt. I have two of it. So oh, my God. Anybody wants to offer me a lot of money, I would I have kind of two love of one. It. I bet, though. I bet it's tiny. and like It's so tiny. It's like the waist yeah. is, you know, like 27 inches. But it's um, it's still there. And because they're polyester and they don't age, they're in perfect shape. So... I'm keeping one. Someone else can buy one off. I think it should go in, like, the gay archive or something. You know what went into Miramax's archive right away was I got most of Ryan's clothes because we were the same size. And, and in fact, I've been wearing his costumes because he had these fabulous, fabulous costumes. What have you been wearing of his? You've been in his pants, basically. I've been in in Ryan's pants. I've been wearing Ryan's everything but his shoes um, um, to the festivals. So he had this beautiful Italian suit... And um, was oh it the and the one that's in the final scene of the? It's the where old cut? no, it's when he goes to the fancy dinner party oh, on yeah. Park Avenue, and they call him a troglodyte. So that's what I wore to the U.S. premiere, and that's when you see that big chunky red tie. If you see any pictures yeah. of me, it's because that's his full costume. So the, the suit has aged well. The the tie did not age so well, but I, I love that I wore his costume. How fun! And then there's another one that I wear a lot is uh, that I actually. Uh, still fits and still has aged incredibly well. I'm, I can't think... Oh, you know what it is? It's that beautiful sort of red jacket when he goes to Elaine's and he pays for the bill and he can't afford it. Yeah. So when I feel in that sort of mood, I like to wear that jacket. And um, That's he, so cool. Yeah. So anyway. I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, real, he's so beautiful in it. He's like a... Like a painting or something. Do you remember, like, looking in the monitor going, Jesus, the camera loves him? Well, we really, um, the so the DP and I and the hair person and Ryan and the trainer and everyone, you know, really worked. The idea with uh, uh, Alex. What do you mean the trainer? Well, so we sent him to the gym. Oh, right on. Um, so, um, uh, so Alexander Gruzinski, the DP and I, had this idea... You know, that I wanted to turn him sort of into the statue of David. Yes. Because he had this sort of beautiful, once we 
grew his hair out in the 70s way. He had these beautiful golden curls. And it was was and it a perm or was it his hair naturally? No, no, that's his hair. Yep, oh yep, my yep. god. Oh yeah, that's his hair. And um, he um, and so you know he already already had a nice body, but going to the gym sculpted it more. And um, he um, you know we would just try to frame him and light him certain times to bring out the David. And I think it's most successful in one shot when he's stealing his father's keys and he has on a Dago tee and it's just the way he's it's the simplest scene it's in this crummy New Jersey apartment or house and it's just a shot where he because of the way he's turned and positioned and lit and all that I think is the most David of the um that's so shots. cool because yeah. I, I to me I, I kept thinking of a painting or something but I but it's the David mm-hmm. that you evoked mm-hmm. um, I love that now, was it? Were you ready to do this all along, or is there something about this happening now that feels well? Like I said, the, you know, the right we, time. Like I said, you know, ever since um, I guess two thousand and eight and whatnot. I guess I, maybe since nineteen ninety eight, I've been hoping that my version could come out. Um, but uh, I guess the timing is good. Um, because in some ways um, there's this sense that the film is really ahead of its time and part of that is the flawed characters and the you know the, the complexity of all that and um, so you know television now requires flawed characters so I feel like television has kind of paved the way for this movie to come out right and, and at the time people weren't no, it was all about likability. And everyone was afraid. Everyone has to be likable. Yeah, that was this horrible word, likability. In fact, Salma once asked for a meeting, and I'm like, oh, no, she, to talk, talk about her character. And I'm thinking, ugh, she wants me to, like, we're going to have to talk about making Anita more likable because Anita's really in it for herself, as I mentioned. She's super selfish. Fun, but selfish. And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to deal with her likability. And instead she was like, Mark, I want to talk about Anita's hair. I think she should wear wigs. <laughs> I love it. That's such a you're like okay, great. I'm so relieved. Yes. Um, one of my very favorite movies is Saturday Night Fever, and this echoes that, especially this cut, this this sort of young guy and uh, the disco era, but also his sort of him sort of not being super sophisticated, but finding himself in this world. And oh yeah, was it a touchstone for you? Oh, for sure. I love that movie. Carolyn Gorney actually was in. Um, 54, she didn't make the cut. Um, it was a very small scene when they arrive at the club. When they first pull up to the club and jump out of the car, you know, the two boys, Mark Ruffalo and Ryan, jump out of the car and leave the cousin sitting in the car. And then a woman jumps in and says, they hated the orange, just hated it. And she starts pulling off her orange blouse and putting something else on. Right. But it kind of slowed down the action, so unfortunately we had to cut it. But it was wonderful to have Karen on the set and... You know, ask her questions about, um, you know, what it was like to make the film. She was so perfect in that movie. Because she wasn't that sophisticated at all, but to him, she was. So good. She was so perfect. I love that movie so much. Me too. I really do. And that was really, I mean, a lot of, you know, there's my, probably my two, well, one is an homage and one is just an inspiration. But I suppose my homage is to end with a freeze frame in the way that, um, uh, much different freeze frame, but uh, as you know, Saturday Night Fever ends in a freeze frame, very 70s. Um, and the other thing is the way that music is used in Saturday Night Fever as a character. And it's used to um, enhance a scene, it's used to sort of reflect what's going on inside a character, it's used to drive the movie forward. And so, um, 
uh, dealing with the music was was incredibly complex in this recut of the film, and I and I'm I feel very happy. And I, I believe my friend Mervyn Warren was yes. in the mix. Merv Warren did an amazing job. There were a few things that we need, had to have composed, right? And so Merv. Um, because uh, of timing issues. So Merv did a great job with the Christmas scene and, um, ooh, the, the, the famous, famous and infamous scene of where the two boys kiss in the basement. Merv, that's his song underneath there. And then also Cody Mundy, who is original music supervisor, did a song for when Shane walks into the club and also a very important moment where we couldn't, you know, really find anything else, so... Now, the, the, the kissing scene wasn't in the cut that came out in theaters. Oh, no. Um, I love the moment, and I totally got it. Ryan yeah. Felipe is, like you said, sort of sexually, you know, that's, he, that's part of his currency, and he just does. And mm-hmm. I believed it. Mm-hmm. I believed the confusion and the look on his face. Mm-hmm. I thought it was lovely. Yes, thank you. That Cutting that scene was probably the most difficult. Um, and that's one, really, that you know, uh, took probably years to cut because Lee uh, Percy, my original editor, did a terrific job with that, but it needed so much refining over, you know, over time and having, you know, the the, dis- uh, the mere distance of 17 years yes. to look at it again and say, mm, you know, this shot needs to be another uh, half a second longer and let's trade out that take of Ryan's because it is, there's so much... There's so much going on in his character's head at that moment when he decides to kiss his best friend. It's very difficult to get that to play. It's all in the setup, and then it's in that performance. So very delicate scene, very delicately um, acted and shot, and um, I think everybody did a great job. I think it works great. Knowing that they're best friends in real life back then, what was it like to shoot that? Uh, Well, I closed the set, um, and uh, I mean, you would have to ask those guys. I think they're sort of like... They really, they were really proud that they were, you know, the first gay kiss in sort of a, a, a big studio movie where the two lead character, two lead male characters kissed each other, and they were very. Were proud they of the that. first? Yeah, I think two lead male characters in a studio movie. I think. What about the first. wasn't Death Trap? Did Death Trap didn't they have a kiss? Were they leads? Was yeah, it, it was Christopher and was Reeve it, and, um, and was Michael Caine. And was it homoerotic or was it silly? It was homoerotic, but. That was the twist, was that they were, you didn't see it coming. But I remember the audience in the theater being like, what? Like, literally vomiting. <laughs> like, it was so gross. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, I could be wrong, but no, like... And look, and but at also, that time, it was really... Well, here's the thing. Also, and obviously, there was Making Love, and there's, you yeah. know, there's Sunday, Bloody Sunday, isn't that it? And there's, I mean, there's tons of stuff. Right. But in a movie that, it, it, that isn't, it's not about that. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? I yeah. think it was very... Um, it, it had it had a very unique place, and, and they, they were young, and they were of that. They were the first of they. Were, it was that first generation that said, "Oh, who cares about gay stuff? Like that's cool. We don't care." Yeah, and so they were, they were you know they kind of wore that proudly when they were interviewed by Interview Magazine and other places, and so I think that's one reason that people knew it was missing because that kiss had been publicized been and then about. when the movie came out it wasn't there so so it was missing yeah what was that like for you when people would say what happened or mm. like i know you i don't know how much you can go into but what was that time like for you oh it was very painful but you know the thing is um i am not the first um 
filmmaker to have his film recut by the studio, and I, unfortunately I will not be the last, but um, just so thrilled that we finally got to get it out there. And they did reshoots, right? Were you there? I had to do the... Yeah, yeah. we all had to do the reshoots. So yeah, that's what I we thought. We did the reshoots, um, and, and th- there, so there were... What what um, Dennis is talking about right now are the reshoots that are in the 1998 version. So there are over 30 minutes of reshoots in the 1998 version. What's in the version now, all of those 30-plus minutes have been taken out, and 44 minutes of original material have been put back. In fact, I think we only, of the reshoots, there's something like five seconds left. Um, David Kittredge, who's Only my... five seconds of the reshoots made it into your Yes, cut. exactly, made it That's into my That's amazing. Cut. What are the five seconds? So the five seconds are... Um, Ryan they're... Felipe taking off a shirt. No. no. Two shots of... Two quick shots of Steve being thrown out of the club that right. we, we needed, not so much for Mike's character, but for uh, sh- uh, Ryan's character, sort of him looking at this happen. So we uh, put those back, and then one is just this little flash of light in one of David Kittredge's beautiful montages that he did in the in the recut of the film. Now, so. Dave Kittredge uh, did the edit for the for your the new cut, mm-hmm. and he's also in my writers group, and he's mm-hmm. a good friend. And every time he talked about it, he was so excited <laughs> and proud to be working on it. And it yeah. sounded tricky. Oh, and, it's so tricky, yeah. And but I, he was so excited. Yeah, I, it, was, it was so cool. It was yeah. It was it was you know the, it was the craziest production because I was in Philly, he was in L.A., then he'd be in New Orleans, and I'd go down there and. We did. We would do it on Skype. It was just the craziest post-production one can even imagine. It's, it's a miracle that you know there's anything there, let right. alone that it hangs together. So, we're excited. Now you talked about the music earlier. Mm-hmm. You fucking nailed it with "If You Could Read My Mind" because mm. you've got to have that song that makes everybody happy. Mm. And and I could listen to that song, that remake of that song, or what you know that mm. version of that song. Did you know that that was your song, your anthem? Your, you know, how did the, how did you come to that song? Well, so that that's interesting, and that was a that was that happened in New Orleans um, because um, we had that song comes from the reshoots. But I love that song, and I'm a producer on that song, so I, I did love it. So that um, that song wasn't in the original. It was in the 1998 version. It ended. It ended the but 1998 it, version. It but was it wasn't your original, original cut. No, no, okay. No. But I love the movie. That was the one part of the reshoots that I kind of loved because I love that song. It's a and, great song. And it was fun working with those ladies, and and you know it, that was a blast. But um, but just um, the thing about it is it's a very 90s sound, and I really struggled with using it in this movie because this movie, as you probably noticed, really looks and feels like the 70s, and part of that isn't just the, the coloring and the performances. It's also the, um, the music that's used. Yeah. So there's, there's nothing that really is from the, the 90s or that's, you know, out of... Uh, there's one song from 1980 instead of 1979, so right. you all figure out which one that is. There's just one. Um, but um, uh, that this song was a 1998 song, and um, so I figured, well, if we put it in the movie after the movie has ended, like the credits, <laughs> which is where it is, and it sends you out. It yeah. just makes you feel good. Yes, exactly. And it also there's a message. There are three thing. There are three places where the the lyrics, if you could read my mind, hit. The first place they hit are where Shane, Anita, and Greg are walking away from the club, and Anita looks back with regret. So that's the first, if you could read my mind. The second, if you could read my mind, is when it freeze frames on Shane's face, 
at the, which is the end of the movie. And then you have a series of um, shots from 54 back in the day that are intermingled with shots of the, the crew and me as 70s people that you can't tell. So everyone thinks that's all from the 70s, but that's actually some of that is from our shoot. So that was intentional as well. And then the last, if you could read my mind lyric, comes up on my credit. There you go. <laughs> so it, it, it's really well thought through. I do love that song. Um, why 54? What was it about? Because you wrote the script originally. Mm-hmm. Did you write it on spec? And yes. it, And it found its way to Miramax and got made. Why? Yes. What drove you to write about it? Um, so I came of age in disco. I w- was in high school during the disco era. Did you have Angel's Flight Pants? I don't Slacks. think I could afford those. They were so sexy. I, They're so <laughs> sexy. I could still... Did they have pleats? No, they had... Like, no, they didn't have pleats. They had the seam that went down the front, and uh-huh. they had little tiny pockets. Uh-huh. Tiny. No. And I they really... I remember our choir director, we were talking about getting them, and I remember he said that they showed the plumbing, and I was like, yes, exactly. <laughs> Inside my head, I was thinking that. But anyway. I think I had a key on a shirt. There you go. And I had, you know terrible taste which was no but that all, was all the whole it. thing yeah, that was the whole thing yeah but you and were we interested the, in disco. well we would go to the disco every night it was literally in a cornfield in iowa it's called the starlight orbit disco lounge which is what i then named the disco in new jersey um uh, where the boys first go at the beginning of the movie and every week we were 17 years old and we would sneak into this place and um w- every week an amazing new song would come out and can you imagine that? I mean, now all of these songs are classics, but imagine hearing them for the first time. So disco was was obviously, you know, it really infiltrated the entire society. It wasn't just the music. It was the clothing. It was, you know, all this stuff, which is, you, you know, it just really took over pop culture so that there was a backlash with Disco Sucks in 1980. And um, um, part of that, I think, was... Well, there, there were many reasons for that, I think, and part of it is political, part of it is how it just completely took over. But um, in it, just imagine every week going in there and there'd be a new Donna Summer song or a new Thelma Houston song or a new, you know, Cheryl Lynn song. And now we hear these songs all the time, and it was just such an exciting time. So even in the cornfields of Iowa, you could feel that excitement of disco. So what is the ultimate expression of disco studio 54 so when i was in um, graduate school um one of my teachers and mentors was paul schrader and i met with him after i'd made the dead boys club which had disco in it um, right back when disco still sucked but it was kind of creeping back into the gay clubs and i brought it back in this haunting sort of way with don't leave me this way and a couple of other songs by the way by Thelma houston and um and uh, so I met with Paul and I said I wanted to do a disco American graffiti and he said set it at 54 so right there he um, you know that was Paul's idea and then you know we started talking about it and realized that the lead character should be a bartender and then it was my sort of idea to um, make a movie about the worker bees because I had been a waiter all through college and I loved it and I loved the family that was created with us and so my thought was what do I know about the rich and famous I'm going to make this about the kids who work there and look you know have the rich and famous kind of swirling around them right and so I think that's actually why the movie got made because when it was um, when it was made there were probably 20 competing projects about Studio 54 it was very much in the air 
and um, none of them got made because they were always about the rich and fabulous or about Liza or Bianca or whatever, and mine was about the kids. So, so there's something democratic about that, and there was some way in. Um, uh, right, we could enter uh, through those, yeah. those white eyes. Exactly, yeah. The velvet rope is lifted for this kid from Jersey, and yeah. then we all get to go in. Right. You know? so. What's your favorite disco song? Mine, I'll tell um, you mine. You Should Be Dancing, the Bee Gees. Mm-hmm. Great one. Boogie Oogie Oogie, Taste of Honey. Uh-huh. I mean, there's many more, but those are my, those are the t- are top two for me. Well, um, night, since you're going to go Bee Gees, Nights on Broadway is Oh, the that's most a good amazing. one. Candy Stanton's cover of Nights on Broadway is one yeah. of the greatest songs. Sam! Have, have you heard Candy Stanton? No, I'm going to go look it up now. Yeah, well, after this interview is over, okay. we're going to play it. It's so Okay, fantastic. I can't wait. So, anyway, I would say if I had to have a favorite disco song... I love Saturday Night, Sunday Morning by Thelma Houston, and that was a song that was supposed to end the movie, but it was too expensive, and so that's why I used If You Could Read My Mind, and that's why I sang. This happened in New Orleans, where the the news came down that we were not going to be able to afford Saturday Night, Sunday Morning. What, what do you mean by New Orleans? Were you shooting there? No, David and I were cutting there for a week. Oh. <laughs> it was like we were cutting all over the oh, world. Oh, it was insane. okay, recently. It was where, yeah, it was yeah, wherever, yeah, yeah. wherever David and I were, we were cutting, you right. know what I'm saying? And so, um, we, um, so that, uh, uh, so the, the realization came or, or was bubbling up that we were not going to get Saturday night, Sunday morning. And so I, I, I said, let, I, I laid down, um, if you could read my mind and I thought, yeah, it works. And David was like, oh Yeah. David got teary. Sorry, David. I saw you cry. <laughs> I, that song is... I know it's its not period, but it, there is something magical about that song. Yeah, and you get away with it because it's at the end. And, it, yes. and, and the actual composition of the song is from the 60s, and yeah. so it is period in a way. Yeah. What's your favorite memory of working with Mike Myers? Because I remember going, wow, he really did something different for him in this movie. Mm. I loved rehearsing with him because he was just so curious and so into it as as I am and I love the rehearsal process. And then I also obviously loved the rolling around in the money. In yes, the that was so fun. Um, that scene was was great for many reasons. It, it was always kind of a plum scene, but often your plum scenes get cut to nothing. Every single syllable of that scene, I think that was probably written years before the final script was finally done w- ended up being on the screen it's all every, everything is there i think maybe even in the studio version they cut two lines and and we we put them back um but uh mike was fabulous in that scene and he um did that sort of he's uh, sort of method so he it was as if he was on ludes the entire time right so he it was it was very sweet to have this you know looted at a fellow with too many lewds and too much champagne in his system. I'm um, not really, but um, as if he had them. In That's his how system. he was channeling him. Yeah, it was like it, t- it was easier to stay in character for that whole you know 12 hour day than it was to get out of character. Right, it's very difficult. So how does he feel about really the fun. new cut? Great, I think. I mean, yeah. he's um, you know you'd have to speak to him, but he's he got good reviews from the other one, and yeah. he's gotten you know stellar reviews from this one. So I, I he's sort of off the grid, Mike Myers. Yeah. Well, I just I miss him. I was like, oh, so good to see him when I saw him in the movie. When I saw him in the movie, Um, why you got to you were making you made shorts before this. Mm -hmm. Then how did this happen for you? And you got to direct it. Mm, Well, you know, I um, I just 
I said I didn't need to direct it. But here's the thing. I'd made these shorts that did really well. And, and my short, Alkali, Iowa, had won a lot of awards, including Berlin, which is where this thing premiered. So Berlin is all through my Berlin's life. Berlin's magic. Yeah. Berlin is magic for me. And um, so, um, so the studio asked me to direct it, you know? They wanted me to direct it, and I said, sure. So, um, Were you, was, like, the first few days, were you like, holy shit? Did you ever feel like, I'm in over my head, or, oh, my God? Well... Pre-production, even on the tiniest movie, freaks me out. But once I'm on the set, I really love it. It's like, okay, you know, throw me some more spitballs. Right. Um, so I actually love production. It's a strange thing. Um, but there was, I think, the time when the 300 extras were there and, you know, eight members of the cast and, you know, several of the movie stars and thinking, okay, this is when you put on your hat like you know what you're doing <laughs> and um you know i literally had a bullhorn and um i just had to exude this confidence while inside i was you know freaking out but it's you know it's it, it worked and so go. when when that when i realized that worked then everything was easier after that so i love nev campbell in your new cut oh i love that she's so sort of I. she's sort of this mysterious yeah, a fantasy of what sophisticated women are. She was like the Carolyn Gorney, in yeah. you know character. I love her in in the cut. I do too. And you know, this is the thing. She came down to the. Um, uh, we had our Latin American premiere in Guadalajara. It was really wonderful, and she. Um, you know, this is the thing. It's it's it was so wonderful for her to support this film because she went down she, to Guadalajara. Yeah, damn oh, right. It was, oh, it was fabulous. It was the best. Um, but but um, you know, this was um, she actually has much less screen time. But like all the actors, this is the movie that we signed up for, and Nev says it best. She was she said. Julie is supposed to be Shane's fantasy, and now she gets to be Shane's fantasy. Yes. In the retooling of the movie in 1998, that's not Julie Black that Nev and I signed up for. You know what I'm saying? So that, so I think we were both really happy. And she's so. Her last two scenes are so beautiful, where she invites him for the three-way, and then she's pulled away into the blackness. Yeah. Um, she does such a beautiful job in that scene, and in the scene in the limo at the end. She's so good, in fact, that it's sort of 50-50 with people that say Shane should have gone with her or should have gone with his friends. No, she, he should have re- gone with his friends. Right. Agreed. Yes. I agree. But I would say there's about half the audience that say, that, say, that, say, that think he should go with Nev, and it's because it's Nev. She's you know? got something special in it. She, yeah. I, I kept Every time she shows up, you're really happy that you see her. It's perfect. Yeah. It's yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, after the whole thing that happened, how... Did it kick your ass, or how did you kind of keep going, or what was that like? Oh, um, well, I think I went to Paris and quit film for a while, and then I came back and uh, to do um, indies, um, and I thought that would be easier than it was. It would have been much easier for me to make another studio movie, but I was kind of, um, you know, I didn't feel like it. You want to have, yeah, you, you, you kind of had your butt kicked a little. Or, uh, yeah, I definitely yeah. didn't feel like it. So yeah. I wanted to go back to New York and make indies. And then I did do one for IFC that's done well called Pizza. Yeah, with but Ethan Embry. With Ethan, who is a good friend of Ryan and yes. Brecken. Thank you very much. Um, so by now, who do I have left? I have to work with Seth Green, and then I've yes. done the whole gang, right? Exactly. Um, but, um, he, you know, Ethan's so wonderful in that movie. And um, 
he so that we had three hundred thousand dollars to make that, and that was before digital movies were made. We were like one of the very first digital movies, and so that was more about like, can we even see the actor's eyes? You know, so that's it's very much a dialogue movie. It's sort of the opposite of Fifty Four, which is you know a movie told in moving pictures, which is what all movies should be. But my challenge in Pizza was to make a movie that was all about dialogue because we were shooting this video. And, um, you know, the thought was dialogue would play better than, um, you know, since you couldn't really make a moving picture movie at that time. Um, so did that, did more shorts, uh, have been writing a bunch, and um, have just been interested in doing TV and working a lot on TV. So um, that aspect of it has been great because, you know, the, that, that dark side of television it was always what I ever always wanted to do. Right. And so now... Um, Things have caught know, up to film. your taste. Yeah, exactly. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's 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 a little painful to be ahead of your time, and it's also great if you can hang around long enough. It's like if you go to the dance, eventually someone will ask you. If you hang, how is it? No, if you hang around the dance long enough, eventually someone will ask you to dance. Oh, I thought you were going to say to leave. <laughs> no, <laughs> so I got the cliche. Anyway, I like that. So, some, there's some there's some better way of saying right. what I just said. I think I'm going to call this podcast if you hang around the dance long enough, dot, dot, dot. Because that makes sense exactly. with 54. Well, you know, I always I pull a quote. I think you. it's really perfect. Yes, exactly. I don't want to brag, but... And, it, it, and, you know, and it was, you know, this is... For me, uh, there's something important about this movie, too, which is that it's if it can be this, you know, inspiration for other filmmakers to really stick with what they're doing and really have their voices heard, it's really important. And what was incredibly emotional was... Um, that this that frame lines so um, my hometown festival although I've never lived there I, is, is San Francisco I keep forgetting to move to San Francisco <laughs> it's your hometown um, but you've never but, lived there but it's, it's literally frame line is my hometown festival they've been so good to me over the years it's really where my career started where I feel like my my, my strongest audiences for my stuff <laughs> And, they're very um, passionate, that oh, Frameline audience. They're, that, if they're into it, they are into it. Oh, and it's just it, that, 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 that festival in that, that town has been so good to me. And um, so it was really um, something to have 54 there the night of marriage equality um, in the Supreme Court decision That's going the, oh through. Oh, my God. It was literally that night. And it was about having your voice heard and it was so emotional I think for all of us it was really like if you really if you talk long enough and loud enough people will listen and do you feel sort of fired up again like okay I can go to some Hollywood meetings I can I can yeah. I can play the game again I've got I've got the stomach for it yeah again. well I've never stopped doing that that's always been it's just that it's shifted over more to television so I've right. never I've never stopped doing that but um would I do a studio movie now yes and for sure you know it's it's interesting because studio movies have changed so very much but um but have they because you know this was as as we've said a little ahead of its time so um uh, but yeah, I mean, I just love making movies and, you know, I'll make one for a nickel. I'll make one for, you know, $80 million, which I'm sure someone who's listening is going to give to me. Right. Um, I just love making movies. So Do you have something you'd like to make next? Do you have mm. a script that you're like, this is, this is yeah. what I'd love to happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you say anything about it? Um, I, well, it's called Memory Card and it's really scary. Wow. Um, there, so there, that's the um, that's the feature. And then I have several TV projects. One is called Berlin. It's set in 1941 Berlin, and it's a thriller. And that's with Warner Brothers. And then um, 
the other, and then I have a development deal with my beloved Miramax. So I'm very wow, that. that's yeah. exciting. Which I'm not going to tell you what that is, but guess what? But guess Just what? Get, guess what it might be? A sequel? Well, no, it's fifty-five. A t- it's a TV show. Fifty-five is. Is the it one a fifty-four that was made. TV show? It could be, <gasps> Mister. Oh my God! I would love that. You know what show I loved? That's that's similar era is um. Oh, fuck. It was set in the 70s. It was about swingers. Ah, uh, uh, Alan Poole's series. Yes. Yeah. What was um, it called? It's, um... It's called... I know. It was great. It was uh, Hodge. Yeah. yeah anyway, I loved it. Yeah. What it the fuck great. was it called? It was a summer show. It was great. Anyway. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll y- figure y- that out. Y'all go and look it up online. It's All right. Really good. The producer's Alan Poole, and it's yeah. really good. Uh, it'll come to me, or it won't. Right. Um, you know, creative careers go through ups and downs. What kept you going during your downs? Um, I, so I'm from a farm and I know that work is really hard. So what are you going to do? So you're used to, you have you're, to get up and yeah. work. I love that. Yeah. When you were on the farm, what were you really good at? Could you milk a cow? I was really good at driving the tractor and singing show tunes from start to finish. I could While sing, you drove the tractor? Yeah, because to, to, to mow our lawn, which was three acres, I mowed it on a tractor. I could sing the whole score of Funny Girl and the whole <laughs> score of West Side Story wow. from beginning to end. Yeah. In one, and then you, when you well, finished, no, funny, funny Girl was one, yeah. was one, you know, and then the two weeks later. You would do West Side. I would yeah, do West yeah, Side yeah. Story. I could do You would Damn just Yankees. literally, don't tell me not to... Live, just sit and putter. Yeah. And what I mean, would people know. would people look at you and? Well, tractors make a lot of noise, yeah. so you're singing at the top of your lungs, and you're oh 16 or 14 or however old I That's was. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, this is what I always thought about growing up on that farm, and it's so. I guess it's a little bit reflected in '54 in the in the color and the flashiness of it. But um, I remember thinking when I was young that. You know, Kansas was so boring for Dorothy that she dreamt up Technicolor. And that was sort of my experience. That's what you felt like. Mm. That's so beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do you and still have you, roots you, there? The Do you still have family Yeah, I go there? home all the time, and yeah. now I'm in charge of that farm. So Oh, shit. It's, um, you yeah, you're, you got to... Da-da-da-da-da. Bum, we bum. just dug a new well. Hallelujah. We yes. hit water. Yes. Yes, yes, you yes. found water. You didn't know if there was going to be water. Well, wells have been drying up because yeah. there's this nasty thing called fracking, and there's yes. um, hog confinements and all these other awful things that are ruining the water table. Okay. And um, we have struck water. So wow. Knock on wood and other things. That's exciting. That's stuff. such good news. All right, I am gonna. You pick some questions from the observation deck, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm gonna fi- fire a few of them away. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the worst job you ever had? Detasseling corn. So you detassel corn on your farm? That's why I'm telling you. Who, Hollywood's easy compared to detasseling corn. How do you detassel corn? Just so, husking corn? No. What's um, the difference so, between husking and detasseling? Well, uh, husking corn is husking the actual ear of corn. Yeah. Detasseling is there's a tall corn stalk. It's about six foot something. And you're a kid, and so you're five foot something. So you have to pull the corn stuck over and pull the tassel up the top so that it doesn't breed. Um, you don't want the male and female seed corn to breed. And so for whatever reason, you're walking down two rows 
it's a, it's kind of a mystery to me. The farmers out there are gonna like really understand what this goes, how this goes. I have a lot of listen to the podcast, by the right. way. I have a huge right. farmer well, demographic. Well, we, you know, we we did. There's a you know pioneer seed and whatnot, whatnot. There is a reason. There's a way of breeding the seed up somehow, and so you would detassel. And this was a job um, that was insane because it was like. It was, you know, like working the cotton fields because it was incredibly hot, humid, um, and corn spiders and, you know, you're being sliced by the leaves and being sunburnt and, you know, I, I think it's harder than picking cotton, but I've never picked cotton. There you go. Wow. Yeah. I learned something there. What's your best random celebrity sighting? Wink Martindale. Where was he? He hosted a game show that I was on called Jumble, and he made a fart joke. And I kind of uh, wrote about it in my book, Misadventures in the 213. I kind of twisted it. But Wink was my host. I love that. He made a fart joke during the commercial. Where did you see Wink Martindale? This was in Hollywood, California, and I was with the producers of The Mayor of Castor Street. I was actually one of those people who was making The Mayor of Castor Street. I actually had that job along with eight others out there. And um, so this was right after 54. That was my job that I was going to do next. And um, Wink Martindale was across the room. And I thought that was that was a good one. I you don't expect it. to see game show hosts out of their habitat. You, you expect them to just live on that set. No, and you don't expect anyone to have that name. That's true. So, um, Who were your teen crushes? Uh, 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 John, what is his name? Um... Race Bannon, bar none. Do you know Race Bannon? The, he, is that the character name or the actor name? The character name. He's yeah. Johnny Quest's um, like sidekick. mentor. Okay. No, his sidekick is Haji. Yeah. So his mentor, you know, kind of daddy lover guy. Right. Is um, is Race Bannon? Okay. So uh, I lo- that name is hot. He Race sounds Bannon. hot. And then also, I have to say, um, uh, uh, Michael. Um, what is uh, Michael Landon? So, really? Yeah. Okay. So he's yeah. handsome. He just seems square to me. Oh I no, I love little... Michael Landon. The only the only reason I'm hesitating is that you know it's it's I've I've had I've told I uh, can I say this on this yes. podcast? But I said it to him. I was like, so we have a friend, a probably a mutual friend, who I said your dad made me gay. Okay. So this is yes. So it so is, there you go. Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, What's the most trouble you ever got in in school? Getting an A minus. So you were that kid. Well, he never got an A minus. That's <laughs> what was gr- growing up in a, what growing up there on a farm. What was that moment early on where you're like, I like films. I want to make films. Where you would where you mm. look back and go, Oh, that's where that light got turned on. Mm. I, I definitely, it was when I went to University of Iowa because I had taken pictures since I was in junior high. I had written plays since I was in sixth grade, and I had acted all through high school. So. I went to Iowa in my sophomore year, and I took a film class, and I thought, oh, this this is all the things I do, and I really haven't looked back. And we made movies on Super 8. I wish all... I wish Super 8... Um, developing Super 8 were easy. I think there might be maybe one lab left that does it, but it's a fantastic way um, to, you know, learn how to make movies, because it really is just moving imagery, and... Super 8 looks like watercolor, so it's this artistic venture, and I, I really loved it. I love that. Uh, what's the funniest way you've ever blown a take? 
Okay. So, um, you know, in uh, 54, when Shane gets called a troglodyte, and afterwards they're in the bathroom, and Anita tells him what a troglodyte is. Right. He thinks it's like a diamond, and she says, no, it's like a caveman that makes me a caveman. And then they're, they're in this beautiful bathroom surrounded by mirrors. And I, I always sit by the camera. I don't sit at Video Village. So I sit by the camera so that it's good for me and my actors. And I actually, you you if you sit by the camera, you see more of the performance than the video sees in Video Village um, when it's projected on a large screen. So for whatever reason, I always sit by the camera. And um, I was sitting by the camera <laughs> during that, while we were shooting that scene. It was so complex because there are mirrors everywhere and you can't, put the camera anywhere without the camera being seen right. and then you have a director sitting by the camera which is you know right. a mess and um i was you know salma was doing Salma had this huge long speech and um i'm not sure that that's the full speech is in there but you know i, I she was doing a, a great job and i was you know really excited and i was clicking my pen because i always have a clipboard and a right. pen and i was clicking my pen and she looked over and she said mark if you keep clicking your pen i'm gonna kill you so uh, I completely I, ruined she, a great she, take. And she, <laughs> she said it in her Selma way. Yes, exactly. um, you picked one other question. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have a story about this question right here, yes? Um, yes. Here's yes. why I ask. Because I do this yeah. thing with Frontiers where I tease one question that I don't put in the podcast. Yeah. And then I write it up later. So yeah. we're going to save this question. Okay. The question is, what was your most glamorous night? I'm going to ask Mark right after we turn off the podcast. And then I'll write it up for Frontiers. And you can go to Frontiers Media to look it up. Um, this has been delightful. Yes. One Wonderful. last question. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked a little bit about like like how you put your own cut together and sort of shown it around. And sort of started this ball rolling by being being a little mischievous, you know, and and I didn't show it, sir. Uh, but people, it found but it, its way but, out but it became <laughs> sort of legendary, you know. Yeah. It became a myth. What yeah. what is the story? What's the takeaway from your story in, with this film? Tenacity, tenacity, and tenacity. But also, you know, I could. The thing is, this I saw the film in two thousand and eight. At Outfest, and I hadn't seen it in forever, right? Because we, we cobbled it together, I would say, in 1998. And when I saw it at Outfest, I could tell it was a good movie. And I thought, this is a good movie. You know, this is the movie that all these fans and the actors and all my crew wanted to see. In fact, when we showed it at Lincoln Center, we had Lee, the original editor, and Kevin Thompson, the original production designer, and the moderator asked about what they thought about the movie, and they were like, well, I'm actually not that surprised, because that's the movie that, you know, I made. Right. So they hadn't been through all the terror of the recut. And they weren't, they weren't the, there for the No, they weren't there, so it was right. sort of like, it just took it just them says, 17 years yeah, yeah, yeah. to see the movie that they worked on. Right. Um... So the takeaway is that, um, is something I said earlier, I think about, um, you know, if you talk long enough and loud enough, some, someone may listen and just that tenacity can pay off. And, um, if, you know, another filmmaker gets his cut out there or her cut out there or another filmmaker gets an impossible movie made because they saw this crazy journey, then I've done my job well. So I love that. You have a spark in your eye. You're mm. all fired up. I love seeing that. It's awesome. It's the vino, dude. It's the vino. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Um, how can people watch 54 right now? It's um, out there. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Thank you. It's on iTunes. Check it out on iTunes. Um, pump up the volume. 
put it on your big screen, dim all the lights, sweet darling, and enjoy. Yeah. And if you want to freeze frame on Ryan Felipe and take care of business, <laughs> it's your house. We got to stop you. Oh, my, my. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Mark Christopher. Make sure you check out 54, the director's cut on iTunes. You will love it. All right. So this happened. I got a job. I got a job. I am a content producer on a new ABC TV daytime pilot called The Filter. It's just three weeks of work, but I'm super excited to be there. I'm having a really good time. I've been there a few days now. I was brought in by my old buddy from Fashion Police, Steve Barry, and it's great working with him again. And um, great to get in the car and go somewhere and do something and get a check. So um, I'll keep you posted about that, but uh, as of now, it's it's been terrific so far. So that's all. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, I would love it if you liked the liked Dennis Anyone on Facebook and told your friends about it. If you love an interview, post it, share it. Just help me build the build the word, spread the word, all that stuff. I really appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.